you for joining your own podcast. How are you today? I'm good. My dog's howling. I, uh, I'm unsure if I have to work on Monday, and uh, <laughs> I just mowed the lawn, so everything's going A-OK. That's a pretty good uh, summer Thursday. Everything lined up. <laughs> nice. Um, all right, so we're here to talk about your book, Tired, uh, because you not only run a podcast, you're also an author. And Tired is your first published book. It came out on Alien Buddha Press. Uh, I just finished reading it. I enjoyed it a lot in spite of uh, having what I, I want to be transparent. I have very little background in reading books like this. I feel like I haven't read any horror or uh, body horror, things like this. And uh, uh, it struck me as a book that would probably be described as horror to some extent based on what I've gleaned from listening to your other interviews with people (laughs) who talk about horror. Uh, So I... I have some questions that I wrote down, uh, and I want to maybe not start so much at that point, but I had a question I want to ask. So we talked before uh, about the impact that Cormac McCarthy had on you in high school in the context of uh, opening up your horizons in terms of what writing could be. Um, And I see, I think, a lot of that influence in your approach in this book to punctuation, lack thereof, uh, sentence structure. What was that experience like for you from reading that book in high school and where you're at now as a writer? Yeah. Um, I think I can kind of remember pretty vividly the uh, first like time sitting in my bed in my parents' house, uh, sitting down to write like the very first words in Scrivener of this book. And there was a lot more um, punctuation. I think I was trying to go for a, like a David Foster Wallace sort of thing. So Mm -hmm. there was long sentences, but it was very much hyphenated, semicolons, colons, commas everywhere. Um, And I sort of just kind of fell out of it. Um, And then when I went through to do some cursory edits, I um, decided to, to go with the McCarthy method, if there is such a thing. But... I was writing it in college, senior year of college, so I was, um, I had just read The Road, and in some of my classes we were going over David Foster Wallace's stuff, especially how he constructed long sentences um, fairly grammatically correct. So um, at first it seemed like it would be useful to do lots of punctuation. I think I had also just finished reading a Girl is a Half-Formed Thing by Amir McBride, which was written in very, like, halting sentence fragments almost the entire way through. So I had um, a lot of different ideas, but the dreamy quality sort of took over, I guess. I see. That's interesting. I like this sort of, at least in my head, a sort of push and pull between the really uh, direct, simplistic approach to the sentence structure of Cormac McCarthy and then the very convoluted, you know, David Foster Wallace and, and sort of pulling it back and forth. Yeah, because there's a lot of very long lines, but there's also very sparse punctuation. And I think that really helps the the repetition be really effective. I thought that was really cool. Uh, and so I guess you already you already said this with, a, with the girls, a half-form thing, and this is related to this, but like I'm always curious about what art acts as I like to think of as a catalyst for another piece of art so not so much like you know broad influences but was there you know can you think back to was there something that you had 
read or, or watched or played or something like that where you thought like oh this could be a seed for what this book ended up being or or taking it in some direction yeah um going back to that moment of first starting to write it i had just gotten back from a birthday party um for a guy <laughs> i don't know so i i used to have a group of friends who would do pretty um i don't know more adventurous things than than what i do in my life now and one of those friends is a guy who's a couple years older than me who worked like the night shift as a janitor at the time and so his only real form of doing things during the week was to join a like nighttime like third shifters bowling league which just so happened to have a lot of gay people in it for whatever reason that's when the gay people go and play bowling and so he made friends with this guy russ and it was his 40th birthday party so i was at a gay club all night um and like just kind of on the dance floor because I wasn't going to socialize with these people I didn't know, completely ignored, like, a bubble <laughs> around me, like a five-foot bubble. No matter how busy the dance floor got, it seemed like nobody got within arm's length of me, which was an interesting experience. Um, so, like, that sort of club music atmosphere, um, and then I had the the like literary influence is um blake butler which is i'm sure a huge surprise i i was <laughs> i had either just finished or was in the process of reading there is no year which is like the single most important book i've ever read i think um and then along with that i had created a i think shortly after i started writing there was a i created a pandora station that was churches and purity ring and throughout the process of writing this book, I almost um, completely listened to that Pandora station and let that kind of like build into quite a monstrous Pandora station. Wow. I like that. Yeah. Okay. That makes a lot of sense. Uh, and thinking back to it, Tired sort of almost begins with this club scene. Uh, where, where Alexis experiences all this, you know, discomfort and sense of alienation. Uh, okay, that's really interesting. So that was like a, a sort of real life transplant where you had this headspace of being out and and yeah, because that's a very viscerally written section where I think sort of uh, you know the rest of the book it's it, it builds on this central departure from you know looking at everything with sort of the normal standard approach and then everything thereafter it's like you know a more detached convoluted way of describing sort of everyday things to create this sense of unease and yeah it sort of goes back to this club scene that's really interesting uh, do you still listen to that pandora station or i you... i don't <laughs> know i i at some point got spotify premium and, and no longer found a need for pandora but in preparation for this i did like recover my password and was listening to it a little bit before you called in so i i'm in the space currently that's great yeah what's the what's that like it, like i guess you know i'm curious about this too and it's related to this like what's the what's the timeline for you on this book from you know from that inception point from publication like is this a couple year thing is this a decade thing like what was your journey 
probably started in it was probably 2014 so because it was senior year of college and I graduated in 2015 so it was probably 2015 probably finished writing it 2016 um and then maybe like once a year until this year would go through it or have my wife go through it and make little tiny changes fix typos things like that up until um i saw that alien buddha press was um accepting submissions that's there there was a period i had sent it around to a couple other places um i initially sent it to agents when i like first finished it because i had i had no idea that um this community if we're gonna call it that existed when i first finished it so it had been sitting in a drawer um for a couple years by the time i started this podcast and met all these people oh wow yeah i I think that's a pretty common story too i think a lot of people you know uh at least my experience i know it sounds like yours and other people's too sort of stumbling into what's happening you know can uh, contemporarily online with writing and publishing after trying to you know get the lay of the land from like the sort of hermitude of writing <laughs> a big opus or something and then yeah so that's interesting so it's it's a few years old but you know you feel like it was pretty much where the the shape it's in today is basically what that original vision was like I feel like in my experience if I pulled something up that I wrote like four years ago and try to edit it again i would you know it would be on undo i wouldn't be able to do it i wouldn't want to tear it completely apart but you felt you know pretty locked into that for what it was i'm I'm not a kill your darlings type of writer i <laughs> everything comes out pretty fully formed and if it's not like good enough at that point i just kind of don't finish it so I'll have I have books that are like forty thousand words in that I haven't touched in years because they just like weren't good enough. So maybe someday I'll go back to them, but for the most part, if I can't finish it in a stretch, um, it probably doesn't see the light of day. That's interesting. Yeah, I, I think I feel similarly, and it's I always think of it as practice, right? Like I think people, yeah, don't talk too much about or don't. I get the sense that it's a lot of publish whatever you have as soon as you can, as much as you can. And writing without getting it out there seems like a waste, but it's, you know, it's still practice, right? (laughs) Yeah, that's cool. Uh, And and so I guess related to that, like the start to finish thing, like are you, did you approach this from an outline perspective? Like, you know, you start at the beginning and you write through to the end, or was it written more in... In, in, in segments and then and stitch back together because there's a lot of it's divided into chapters of varying lengths with little themes on them some more plot driven some more I think sort of like a, an impressionistic approach like did you just go in right from the where the plot started yeah uh, it uh there, there was no outline um I I wanted to kind of center on the feeling of loneliness um, which is why I kept like a consistent like writing music that like mm-hmm. centered on that feeling of being in that club at that time. So I'm like, I was just trying to stretch out um, like that specific strange experience and then plug in other experiences and like episodes 
within it. So there's no outline, there's no plan. Um, it was just like, as I was finishing up with a chapter, it was pretty clear like what they were going to do next, or I would have like, I don't know, probably by about the 30,000 word mark, I kind of knew where it was going to end. And it was just a matter of like getting there. Right. Yeah. No, that makes sense. That's really cool. Uh, I like that. Like the, I think there's a formal term for it, like discovery writing or something where you, yeah. Yeah. I, I feel like I'm, I come from the same perspective that way. I never felt like I had a story fully fleshed out in my head that I just had to then outline and fill in the details. But I think that seems to be a pretty common approach a lot of people talk about. And it seems completely crazy to me. Like, I don't know how you would do that. <laughs> uh, <laughs> so, uh, okay, that's interesting. The, the This this theme of, of loneliness, I want to get into that a little bit, how you frame it that way. Because, uh, because that that vibe is there and it's definitely a theme, but it's also a book with two protagonists who get almost equal screen time. So yeah. Can you go into a little bit about that? Like this back and forth of loneliness, but also togetherness and, you know, sort of what was that like writing the story with two characters? Like it's sort of like a love, I mean, it's a love story. It's a horror story the two characters are always together basically like they're rarely apart i think it's really interesting yeah it's interesting that more than one person has called it a love story and it, i mean i have a very <laughs> small sample size but um i i don't know what the original intention was there um I, and I, I don't want you to tell me the original intention. I'm Good. more interested in sort of what that, yeah, I don't think, I don't think authors should say what their intention ever is, but I more like what that experience is like, because you know, obviously you wanted to come at it with this sense of isolation, but also these two characters like from, yeah, just from the writing and editing experience. I don't know if I was just confident in my ability to write an 80,000 word book with only one character so I think I just had there be two characters <laughs> and for for whatever reason I don't know if I was thinking like well if I have two characters one's got to be female and one's got to be male um at some point I remember thinking a lot about the the Miyazaki type script writing process where he always has like a boy and a girl in his stories and like mm -hmm. make sure that they're not like romantically linked at all um Mm -hmm. So I was kind of going for that, and I guess I was thinking about it while I was mowing the lawn today, and I, I feel like it kind of makes it more universal because I had, um, I don't know, sort of like more kind of male issues with Eric, where he was incredibly violent, um, and with Alexis, with, you know, like bodily autonomy and things like that. And yeah. So I guess I'm pleased with the way it turned out. It, it, it doesn't have a super like uh heady reason behind it beyond just needing to have two characters for the sake of getting words on the page and then of course once <laughs> i was there it was like well i definitely want to make sure that they have like equal screen time because i don't want it to be one of their stories um which is why there's parts where i don't even say like who's doing certain actions i just say like one of them goes over here and does this right yeah i thought that was 
I mean, I was going to say, like, I, I think that's a really unique uh, and I would say effective approach. Like, I, I can't think of a, of, a, of a book or even a story I've read where there's sort of these dual protagonists who, you're right, are in, in the minute details sort of interchangeable, but they both reflect aspects uh, of the larger story and, and they have their own personal struggles. But it's, it's very much like a, a sum of the two parts kind of thing. I thought that was really interesting. And I'm glad you brought up two things and they sort of feed into other notes I, I had. I'll start with one. So yeah, you, and this goes back to the, to the style too, where there's a, in reading it, I noticed what it felt like a generally very rigid style guide uh, that you probably had sort of in your head, like I mentioned with the punctuation and, and the rep- repetition and sort of pushing into extremes in this, you know, in this, I don't, not predictable, but predictable within the, the text itself sort of way, like this, you know, a, a topic comes up and then you explore it by really pushing on it. But they're also, right, as you mentioned, scenes where it's underspecified who does what, you know, um, uh, there's lots of these lines with no commas or, or ands, like you, you know, diverge from this list status, there, uh, not status, but list approach. There's and little playful things like uh, I, this stuck out to me. Describing a, a semi, uh, um, yeah, semi truck is a fifty thousand wheeler instead of an eighteen wheeler, stuff like this. So like from this, I read into the sense of playfulness in spite of the content. And what was your, you know, was there something that went into motivating or inspiring this idea of of rejecting this strict style yeah um i had taken a couple workshop classes and i I didn't like them so (laughs) i I foolishly and it's it's so silly now like especially having read so much like inside the castle stuff and amphetamine sulfate stuff like i wanted to write a book this is a very like college senior sort of sort of way of looking at it like i wanted to write like the anti-audience book like i wanted Mm. it to be like unpleasant to read and i wanted you like part part of you not knowing who's ever talking was just like i don't want you to know who's talking um and i i think it it sort of worked out for the best because by the time i got to the end i was i was more compassionate to the story rather than being like antagonistic to the audience um Mm. and i'm certainly like again it's it's so foolish like you can see the words (laughs) on the page (laughs) like it's 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 a very like that just shows how poorly read i was at the time i think to to think that like having unattributed dialogue in in a novel makes it like anti-reader well i'm i'm curious about this like what was that like where were you at in terms of where does that motivation come from, I guess, for that? So, like, you, you definitely, you pull back from it and, and you know, the, the final text breathes more and isn't super anti-audience, but, like, yeah, what's the what's the genesis for that? Like, where were you at sort of mentally with that? In terms of, like, trying to make it anti-audience? Yeah, yeah I'm, I'm just, just curious, curious about that. that. I think that's, that's fun. fun. Oh, I and just... <laughs> I don't know, like... I was I was pretty angry. The the younger I get, you know, in my history, like the angrier I get. Um, mm. So I imagine by the time I'm an old man, I'm just going to be the happiest guy. <laughs> but um, I don't know, like my early twenties, my late teens, I was just sort of 
sort of a malcontent. Um, and just remembering my workshop classes and trying, they, they were for people who were majoring in writing, not people who had a minor in writing. So like I only took one maybe, um, and just the experience is kind of unpleasant. Anybody who's ever like had a writing workshop where, you know, 30 people who had to read your story and 29 other stories, um, go and tell you all the things they don't get you know and it's a right. whole bunch of other 18 year olds too so like none of them are very well read either um and so it was just like i don't understand why your character swears so much and like <laughs> the fact of the matter is that particular story which no one will ever read again like had way too much swearing um but like i at the time didn't get a good reason why it was just a lot of i don't understand why you did this i don't understand why you did that um so there was a motivation for me to just make an entire book full of choices that no one could possibly understand. Mm. Yeah, like a, a reaction to this criticism of your art. Like, if you don't like it, then you're really going to not like this. <laughs> and then it's funny, like, and then, you know, the, the resulting thing is I think it's really uh, fun and innovative and pleasant to read where... You know, the it starts from the seat of I'm going to underspecify who's doing what because it'll piss someone off. And then, you know, reading it how many years later, it's like, oh, this is fun. <laughs> I, I enjoy this. I think this is a good technique that should be employed more. Uh, <laughs> I like that. Uh, I like that arc there. Do, do you still feel like a sense of, I mean, because it's definitely not a, a normal, you know, literary fiction, big five book. There's you know, it's definitely very heavy in style and, and content. Like, do you still think of this as uh, an audience challenging work? Or do you feel like, you know, having been exposed to more writing different presses and, and movements in the scene where it's not so much anti-audience, but it's about a niche audience or something like that? Yeah, I, I think that's it. I mean, like my my Hungarian grandmother has read it at least twice. Like it's fine. <laughs> People can read it. It's a readable book. Um, you know, like I hadn't even read Samuel Beckett, you know, at the time. So like yeah. I hadn't read Joyce. I, I had read Cormac McCarthy and Blake Butler and been like, I know what weird literature is like. And I mean, there is no year it came out on Harper perennial. So, right. you know, like a millionaire was making money off of that book. Um, so yeah, pro it's, it's definitely more of like a niche audience sort of thing. I think, um, there was a guy who popped into the community and then I guess kind of popped out. Um, do you remember Kenny Mooney? He came out with a book called desk clerk. Uh, um, it doesn't sound familiar. He, he like made his own press, um, put it out. And I remember a decent amount of people tweeting about it. Like it kind of seemed like he just sort of appeared and then and then went away and I emailed him because I felt like he and I had sort of a similar kind of idea about writing. But yeah, it's I still feel like the book doesn't quite belong in among the world online that I move in. Like I have sent it to presses that have published people who have been on the show because that those are the presses I read now. Mm -hmm. um, 
and I mean, people who have been on the show have published stuff through Alien Buddha Press. So, like, I guess it does fit. But it, I, I still feel like to this day, like whenever I finish a project, I have a hard time trying to figure out where it belongs. Um, yeah. So I think that's more about me than it is about the work. Sure. No, that makes sense. And I, I don't think you're very much alone in that. I think everyone, uh, sort of in our in our social circle, would agree that publishing is kind of like the worst part <laughs> of of writing. It's where you know everything sort of falls apart because yeah, everyone wants there's there's that that push and pull of what's predictable for given press and what are they curating versus everything should still stand out on its own merit, right? So there's like this individualism versus being able to be lumped into some kind of genre or something that I think everyone struggles with. Uh, uh, Were you able, like, uh, now I'm curious about this mysterious Kenny Mooney. When you emailed him, is this after he disappeared? (laughs) No, I think he was still on Twitter. He, I sent, I, I sent the book to him. I sent Tired to him and just asked for his opinion and he seemed to enjoy it. At least he said nice things about it. And, and then sort of, prefaced his response email with like hey just like so you know like i'm not good enough at marketing to like want to put out anybody else's book Mm. um through my own press um but and then he told me reasons he enjoyed it um i think it was like a british guy okay yeah i like i hadn't been in touch with him since like i sent him a response to that email and i thanked him and i talked about the book a little bit and i don't think i ever got an email back so i don't know what he's doing, where he is. Kenny, if, if you're listening, buddy, get in contact. Just worry about you. We're all worried about you. Yeah, a few people have disappeared. I there's the, there was a there's a poet who was active right around when Neutral Spaces was sort of starting off. Stefano Caligaro, who was a this Romanian poet, and he would write these really weird, tiny, all caps, lots of typos, uh, really fun poems and. He ended up sending me a copy of a, of a book he had that came out in Romania, and it's all about racing cars, but it's like this like this uh, futurist-style, typographically stylized thing. And then he completely disappeared. I don't think he's tweeted in like two years or a year and a half. I think I remember him in the Neutral Spaces chat, which is... I think I'm, I'm alone in, in finding that that was my favorite part of the website. Oh yeah, that was a great thing. We should we should <laughs> we should get back into that. That was a great little. Uh, I, I used to spend a lot of time there. Yeah, I lurked. I lurked a lot. I don't. Oh, <laughs> uh, Stefano, if you're listening, please come back. I like your book. <laughs> uh, okay, so the maybe this leads into the, the genre thing, and I and I mentioned this before, but like, I'm, I'm worried about offending sensibilities when I talk about horror because I know it's a very complex thing, but again, for someone, you know, you know, I'm someone who hasn't read much in the, in this vein of stuff. And when I say horror, I'm coming at it like, Oh, there's lots of blood and guts and spooky things. Like what's your you know background with relationship to horror genres of horror and like how you think of this book in terms of that? Yeah. Um, I, I don't think it's a huge surprise to, to say that I'm, I'm really into the Lynchian aesthetic. So, um, I suppose tired is horror in the same way that like twin peaks is horror. Um, and 
I, I came into consuming horror pretty late. Um, I remember um, I found, as I was first discovering podcasts, like back in <laughs> middle school, maybe, I was like, it was they were new. Like the first podcast I ever listened to was a World of Warcraft podcast that oh, wow. I was listening before the first expansion came out. So whatever year that was i it was that's when i, I started no listening to podcasts <laughs> um but i found and and i interviewed the editors of of pseudopod on this podcast but i found the escape artists network of podcasts that publish genre um short fiction in an audio format um very much the reason the show exists because i found those and i had uh, Escape Pod, which was science fiction, and Podcastle, which was fantasy, and I had Pseudopod, which is horror, and I remember, like, putting off listening to Pseudopod for a long time, because I was, like, worried about being scared. <laughs> there was a, a point, like, up until, I don't know, like, a sophomore, junior, in high school, where I was expecting to be scared consuming horror media. Um, so mm. I came really late to horror you know respectively in my life um and then started consuming a lot of it um but i like haven't read a lot of like straight up like genre horror books um the only clive barker i've ever read was his like urban fantasy stuff um so you know reading amygdala tropolis or brendan vedito or um uh, C.V. Hunt were like some of the first like just kind of straight horror books I had read so my my literary horror repertoire is very small and and am I right in then thinking that that sort of comes after when you actually worked on the book or mm-hmm. wrote the book yeah and yeah I found because I found there is no year by searching for surreal books I was mm. I was very into surrealism as an idea without actually really having you know like knowing all that much about the surrealist movement or anything like i kind of understood dali and i kind of understood the fantastical nature of the idea of surrealism but didn't really know too much about it so um i guess that's more what i was going for and it just was a dark book because i was in a dark place and my sensibilities with regard to media are dark. <laughs> okay, that makes sense. That's really interesting. I I would have I wouldn't have assumed that that were the case. Uh, so then, like, what was that experience like? Like, was there sort of a a realization then? Like, once you start exploring books and media in this genre, and you're like, oh, yeah, that's what I was doing, or that's what I wanted to do. Like, did that pop out at all to you? Um, every once in a while, I get a whiff of it, I think. I, w- I was so kind of mono-focused on, like, David Lynch, Blake Butler, um, 80s revival music, that, <laughs> um, like, that's kind of, it's contained within those feelings for me. Okay, like, sure. It was such an emotionally charged process and time for me that um again like like saying i i still don't really know where it fits um in the larger landscape um is kind of the case but every once in a while i mean 
Um, There's another book that I'm trying to get published right now that I've been sending around and has been seemingly like getting close and then, you know, not going over the edge of actually being accepted that like I read Amygdalatropolis immediately after finishing writing that book. And I'm like, oh my God, Amygdalatropolis is the better version of what I just wrote, (laughs) Um, which is such a such a weird feeling and then going on with that the piece that jaeger read at the end of that episode was almost well it was exactly the same concept i had written for the aforementioned workshop class like four years prior um so there are people who are like on the same wavelength as me but doing things in a little bit different of a way um enough for me to not feel like I'm copying or like I'm, you know, like too enmeshed. They're just doing things in, in maybe better ways as far as I can tell <laughs> than what I'm doing. Or at least to me, like, I definitely like Ben's writing more than I like my writing, <laughs> I think. Aw. <laughs> yeah, I, that's an interesting, I mean, that's that could be its whole own conversation, like what it means to like your own writing as a as a reader. I think that's, that's a... I was thinking about this recently, just in the context of the, the of, of my book that's coming out next, where it's I try to I just had this sort of thought, like you know, if, is this something that I would read uh, if I picked it up, like for the certain reasons behind it? And I thought that was a it was an interesting thought experiment, where you know, uh, like in my experience with music, I feel like it's very maybe it's much more accessible to to compose or record something that you can then listen to and enjoy listening to as a piece of music but i think reading your own writing it has this i don't it's it's a different experience is that would you say similar yeah i yeah i don't want to misrepresent myself i because i i would argue that br yeager is a better writer than me but i am still very much my favorite writer um okay so like (laughs) every, every time i go through a book i finished writing before i like make the the dirge to try to get it published again or even short flash fiction pieces or whatever um it's an enjoyable experience um i I very much enjoy writing the type of writing that i write and i very much enjoy reading my own writing i'm very much up my own ass when it when it comes to my writing (laughs) whereas with music that i have put out um that is not so much the case with the exception of like some noise music i've done which i think the artist is kind of it doesn't really matter who the artist is when it comes to noise music but like some of the other things i have done musically uh i kind of i enjoy it the same way that someone who like looks at an old photograph of themselves wearing very now dated clothing looks and it's like (laughs) i had fun back then (laughs) you know like that that was great you're not going to catch me wearing that again but like man was i cool at that point (laughs) i like that comparison (laughs) interesting okay yeah i I, um there's something there i wanted i wanted to follow up on uh this um oh I've I've completely lost it. I'm sorry. Maybe it'll pop back into my head. I should be taking notes. <laughs> um, so okay. So 
you, you came at it in the original CD, you were sort of in a dark, angry place. Um, and, uh, you know, starting with these anti-audience motifs and then they, they, they morphed a little bit, but something like alongside the, I'm just going to say horror, like an idiot, but like, you know, stuff that is more visceral or hard to read in terms of, you know, like the, the, the scene with the carpet really stands out to me, this really visceral discuss like sense of what it would feel like to really be embedded deep in a bunch of carpet fibers and how un- <laughs> uncomfortable and terrible like there's a lot of these these little scenes that are very uh you know stark and intense but i also notice a lot of humor um like the one that stood out to me the most was the this aside about the guy who carved the jesus statue and it's like this little aside paragraph where you're just gonna give like a, a, a brief history on this statue and it culminates with like everything just being really futile and at the end of the story like the statue doesn't even isn't even carved yet and I, I like laughed at that and you know, there's a few other places like that like this misdirection and absurdity which I guess comes out of this surreal vein like you know was that our humor and horror sort of two sides of the same coin for social critique for you this is this is exactly why i i daydream about the idea of being interviewed so much because (laughs) like you you took the exact opposite um from what was intended about that like oh nice that that was not supposed to be funny (laughs) that was supposed to like be sad and make you feel really bad um and I mean, like, like the trucker, you know, the gender dysphoric trucker who, yeah. I, I really hope that holds up. I, I wrote that before I had like ever watched a ContraPoints video or anything. I was very like not um, educated about non-binary or trans issues at all. So I really hope that that like holds up. But um, I would go on these sort of incisive asides. Um like the trucker who gets his face punched in in the diner who like Mm -hmm. is upset with his wife and kids as he's getting beat (laughs) up by this stupid 20 something um that so so to answer your question like humor humor and horror as a social critique was like not not in my mind but I, i think that i think that you have something there i think that that's something that's worth exploring um i find yeah, that i was gonna say like like i guess yeah i mean it's not like a like a like a traditional joke with a set of a punchline but it, you know it's in the vein of black humor where like this is so bleak and at the end everything was so futile that it's in you know as in the presentation makes it funny uh, <laughs> and i think that's the kind of humor that i like the most um i don't particularly like stand-up comedy and if i do it's stephen wright like Mm. the his yesterday i was oh wait that wasn't me like is the funniest (laughs) thing in the entire world and and his his delivery is is perfect but um like i i find that the type of comedy i like is to beat a dead horse like that sort of lynchian thing like in season three where it's just that lady screaming like why are we stuck in traffic we've been driving for so long sort of just screaming over and over stuff that almost isn't supposed to be funny so i guess i was (laughs) i was secretly successful without even knowing 
at the time. Uh, good. Yeah, that's interesting to me. Yeah, I, I mean, I share your... I think it's tough always for uh, writers who don't build themselves as comedy writers or humor writers to really speak comfortably about humor in their writing because I think there's... Uh, people, yeah get worried i think about being pigeonholed like as soon as a book is described as funny you're like oh i don't want to read like a david sedaris essay collection i'm gonna pass on this one but but still so much of my favorite writing in the literary world has this sense of humor to it that that i think comes from a similar place and so yeah it sounds like (laughs) yeah you know I, i can see that thinking about um back patio press books that, like, <laughs> oh, okay, yeah, yeah, yeah. Like that sort of, I don't know, the sad clown sort of thing. Yeah. Um. So I had a thing and I lost it too. Oh. I, I was gonna, I was gonna make a great point, and now I'm not. <laughs> as an aside, well. this just popped into my head, and I, I just want to see if you remember it. Back when yeah. Django Unchained came out, there was a YouTube video that that was going around, and it was like definitely some college kid who who for whatever reason got the opportunity to like get on the press tour, and he was trying to ask Samuel L. Jackson about the use of the N word in Django Unchained, and Jackson was just like, "You have to say the word to me to ask the question," and he's like, "It's a really good question, but I can't do that," and he's like, "Don't care how good the question is," and that. For no reason, this is apropos of nothing, sticks in my mind <laughs> all the time. Like, I do not know what I would do in that situation. Oh, yeah. That's really intense. I I don't know about this, but I want to look. Is this like a video we can look up? I want to find this. Okay. Maybe we can find a link and put it in the episode description. I think that'd be great. Yeah. No, but I, I, think, I don't think it's so much derailment. I mean, it's like this, you know, uh, discomfort. And I think going back to like, you know, humor and horror are about, you know, subversion, mis- uh, misdirection, discomfort. You know, I think we have that natural response to, to laugh when we're uncomfortable. Uh, and that, yeah, that I, reminds me of the thread I lost that nice. I find that going back to me talking about not wanting to get into horror because I was afraid of being scared by it, <laughs> um, that for whatever reason horror sort of at least implicitly promises that you will be scared or unnerved um but when horror breaks that promise i do not mind however comedy promises that i will laugh and have a good time and i'm very offended when it does break that promise which i think is probably why i gravitate more towards horror than than comedy because horror doesn't need to be scary or disturbing or unnerving or even uncomfortable in any way, shape, or form for me to enjoy it, but comedy must be funny for me. Uh, that is interesting. I probably feel the same way, but I'm unsure. I, I, I'll confess that I, I feel like I'm even earlier in my journey than you were, where I don't really, I mean, I don't really watch any movies, like, at all, but when I do, I definitely am not someone who's like, oh, I want to feel scared and uncomfortable tonight. I'm going to watch a horror movie. Like, that's the last thing <laughs> on my mind <laughs> for the same reason. Like, I just don't want to be scared. You know, I think, like, the last time I really felt, I think, scared from some media that I consumed was accidental. And I feel like a nerd for saying this, but Carl Ovik and Oscar, he wrote My Struggle, those books. He also, before that came out, he wrote a book called A, a Time for Everything, and it's this really weird, long, uh, 
book about a lot of retellings of Bible stories from like a, a literary perspective, like a really intense, like what really happened with Noah and his ark and all that stuff. But there's a sub thread sort of throughout it about angels and the study of angels and how fucking weird angels like are or were thought to be. And I remember having a nightmare about angels when I was reading that book, which really stuck with me because it's supposed to be the antithesis, but it, you know, they're supposed to be the good guys, but it's that idea of like the unknown and the un, you can't understand it at all. That's all. That's my little horror contribution. I recommend people read that. <laughs> that's that's fascinating. I'll have to read that because I've been I've been getting like really into. Holy cow! <laughs> I've been getting really into um. I don't know Judeo Christian study lately, um, okay. and I think that would be a wonderful supplement. But yeah, man, there's a reason why those guys led with "Be not afraid." <laughs> Yeah, <laughs> yeah. I definitely recommend it then if you're if you're in that kick because yeah, all these little things like yeah, we could talk about this. Should be another episode, different podcast. Um, <laughs> so and and maybe another thing I want to go back to really quick too was this. Uh, I, I mentioned it about the humor thing is social critique. So me reading it because I think we come from similar you know backgrounds. I grew up in Ohio and and lived in Michigan and you know, we're, we're, we're boring white guys from the Midwest who grew up sort of in this post nine 11 world. So I, I noticed a sort of running social critique of things from that felt really important and big, you know, in that time period growing up, like women's rights, absurdity of organized religion, land development, industry, toxic masculinity. I mean, these are still obviously issues, but, uh, like the religion thing in particular, I think stood out to me because you talked about this on your previous episode with, uh, I completely forget his name now. I'm sorry, but yeah, um, sort of this this post post religion thing. But like, since writing this book, I know you've gotten interested more in Native American history, you know, social justice, decolonization. Like, how is that? Uh, has that been an experience worth commenting on? Sort of like reflecting on what were interesting to you at the time or noteworthy to, to write about social commentary versus where you're at now. Yeah. I, I feel like for me, this book is something I could hand to a therapist and then be like, can you use this to explain where I'm at? Because a lot of those things, um, were, I don't know if they were things I was like really consciously thinking about. Um, like I, I definitely took a hard left turn after taking my first sociology class and simultaneously like discovering um, sex positive stuff on YouTube. Um, and, but like my, like I hadn't, read any theory I, I hadn't even like really stumbled into like bread tube if that was a thing back in 2015 um so a lot of those ideas were more just me trying to portray different forms of discomfort so mm -hmm. like being in a city that goes on forever or a factory that is growing and will one day consume the entire planet was more just me dealing with having worked in a factory for a couple of summers and really hating it. So like it, it wasn't so much like, 
a critique of post-capitalism or something as it was just like a visceral fear of having to choose between homelessness and working in a factory again Mm -hmm. um and so so as i have like read more nonfiction, watched video essays you know talked to you know more than a couple people of color in my entire life um it would be very easy for me to point at sections in the book and be like yep that's that that's that that's that but really i think (laughs) it's more useful to look at that as like seeds of where my interests lie now um almost before they sprouted i see yeah no that makes sense that's interesting yeah it's more yeah uh that makes sense like this sort of unconscious uh uh, discomfort projected onto the page and you know one that stands out to me a lot is the the scene in the in the in the shed at the farmhouse with all the meat like this uh you know like really leaning into it and and getting so visceral with it it's like you know you could read it either as from the like from the perspective you laid out as this personal discomfort with things but also as a larger social critique like yeah the meat industry is pretty fucked up it's like (laughs) and but i think those are you know tied together right one creates the other or, or stems from the other you know these systemic issues that manifest in our daily lives right i there's almost i think a naive quality to it because all of that stuff just leads back to me saying I, I took a situation and I wanted the reader to feel as bad as possible while reading it, which means <laughs> that there were there were no, you know, no bumpers on the bowling lane for like how gnarly I was going to get with it. I was going to get as gnarly as I could think to get. Um, and at the time, just like completely not understanding that, you know, or at least not understanding as well as I do today, like that there are people's lives that are that uncomfortable just not that artistically uncomfortable all the time every day sort of thing like i understood that poverty was a thing i understand you know i watched the PETA video of factory farming so like there is that intellectual understanding but um it's interesting to me that the sort of emotional real world understanding um almost came before uh right me yeah i i think i think that makes sense yeah i I think a lot of people have a similar journey i I think i think the writing at least the way that you understand it maybe maybe (laughs) maybe not how somebody else would understand it but like almost is like that the the book contains ideas that are truer to me um than some of my conscious ideas are which i think is maybe a, a glowing uh argument for the importance of art in the world right yeah that, no, that's a that's a really great uh yeah capstone to that that's a good thesis there yeah that this is yeah what we get out of just creating can say a lot more than that we could think to say um ah, that's really interesting yeah i like that uh I like maybe potentially ending on that thought uh, in terms of the discussion of the book. Uh, so now what you like to do on this pot on your podcast is at the end, let everyone uh, have a chance to plug something, convey a political manifesto, uh, call to action, call to arms. Is there anything you would like to 
plug, promote, share? Mm. Um, God, I can't think of anything that wouldn't be cheesy. I, <laughs> because, because I was anticipating talking to you today, I was, I was thinking about you and I was thinking about Twitter. Um, and I was thinking about how I use Twitter. Um, and I also watched a video about the, uh, uh, the bean dad today, the, my brother, oh. my brother and me guy. Um, and I, I had today a, a sort of, it felt important at the time idea that maybe we should try the experiment of not doing snark on the internet for a while. Maybe we should just try to be as genuine as possible. And so if, if I can have a call to action that isn't by my book, it would be to, for, for a week, just try not to be snarky or sarcastic on the internet. Just try to be as genuine as you can uh, and just see what happens. Maybe it's a bad idea, but let's see what happens. That's good. You heard it. You heard it here, folks. Do what Joe says. I will try to do the same thing. I like that call to action. Thank you. Thank you, Joe. This has been wonderful talking to you. I imagine now is when the music will start fading in and it'll get louder and louder. It's a very good way to end the podcast.